Welcome to The Commentary, a weekly conversation about vision, worship, and life at Grace Presbyterian Church. I'm Mark Bertrand, the pastor of Grace, and my fellow commenter in today's episode is Cameron Brooks. We're going to be talking in this episode about discipleship, but not in the usual sense of that word. Instead of focusing on Christian discipleship, Cameron and I are going to dig into the way American culture is discipling all of us, how our world shapes our desires and forms our affections. If this forming power is inescapable, and I think it is, then we have to ask ourselves whether there's any way to counterbalance it. And if there is, what would that look like? Because I suspect that a lot of the common strategies out there aren't powerful enough to address this challenge. Over the last month, I've been thinking a lot about discipleship, but not in the way that (laughs) that word is usually used. What I've been thinking about is kind of the way, if this makes sense, that the world disciples its inhabitants, or the culture around us disciples us. Okay. So... Hang with me here and see if, if, if this makes sense. Discipleship, when we talk about it in a Christian standpoint, uh, Christian context, has to do with formation, right? So discipleship, you know, you've got that, that root word of discipline. So it's not just about obedience. It's about obedience over time. It's about disciplines in life that over time will shape us as we follow Christ. So a lot of times when we talk about following Jesus, we think of it in terms of like decision-making. You know, I've decided to follow Jesus. But the reality of following Jesus is that it's more about forming habits and remaining faithful to those habits over time. And as we do that, they have a shaping effect on us. Um, They shape us not only, you know, intellectually, but they also shape us emotionally or, or they shape our affections. Mm. So it eventually shapes what we love, how we see the world, the way that we approach things. Probably the easiest example, again, within the context of the church, would be what the Westminster Standards talk about as the ordinary means of grace. Uh, the ministry of the word, sacraments, prayer, over time, little by little, these things shape us and they orient us. So that's discipleship as we usually understand it. But I've been thinking about that idea of formation outside the church. Like, How are we being shaped by the larger world? So I'd like to spend a little bit of time talking about that, how it is that the world disciples us and, well, what we can do about it. Do we need to do something about that? Uh, and, and if we do, uh, can we do anything about it? Or is it inescapable? Those are kind of the, the questions I want to kick around. I think that that word escapable actually catches my attention at first because I think it's, it's important when we're having this discussion to say up front that in a sense... Being 
shaped by our society and context is inescapable. And for all human beings, you know, as social creatures, we are almost inevitably shaped by our surroundings, whether those are like ideas, you know, intellectual surroundings or physical surroundings. I think often about how our physical surroundings shape us, you know, form us. So it's not necessarily bad, right, that we're shaped. But I think what you're asking is, what are those, what are those formative practices in the culture that are maybe working against the grain of our discipleship to Jesus? That's a good distinction. I mean, I think you're absolutely right that we are all shaped by our culture mm-hmm. inescapably. Um, obviously, we are 21st century Western people, you know, North American uh, apex consumers <laughs> in a lot of ways. Yeah. Whether we admit that to ourselves or not, yeah. and, and maybe that's really the key, is that a lot of times, and, and certainly this is a temptation for Christians, uh, for, for people who do not feel like their views are represented by the mainstream of culture, let's say, to begin to think that that unlike other people, you are not a product of the culture, right? And and, and to think maybe that that's that's the fundamental difference that that they are shaped by the culture, whereas mm. I am not. Um, but realistically, if you get outside your bubble, you do begin to recognize that you too are a product of your culture. Mm-hmm. Um, it's similar to the way that. Uh, I don't know, I always thought of myself as like a world citizen, you know, kind of a, a person with an international outlook. <laughs> Definitely not a flag-waving, patriotic, um, Lee Greenwood, God bless America kind of sure. person um, until I went to Europe. And I was really surprised how American I turned out to be yeah. in a lot of ways. Like how many things I took for granted and just saw as, as a normal part of reality and when those things were absent, uh, how much I missed them, or in some cases was outraged by <laughs> by their absence. Like, yeah. who doesn't put ice in your drink? You know, what barbarian yeah. w- would withhold the ice when you ask for having to pay for public restrooms? Right, in right, Paris. I mean. exactly. I mean, those <laughs> kinds of things I think are indicators to us, and in, in a you know, just a general way that that although, yeah, there are certainly ways in which we're, we're not products of our culture. In a lot of ways we are. And, and the thing is, we're not always conscious of it, mm-hmm. right? That, that we're not always aware of the way that we've been shaped and, and, and the way that, let's say, the possible interpretations of the world around us have been provided to us, right? That we're, we're, we're not... Uh, doing what I think a lot of people imagine uh, when it comes to forming our beliefs. We are not just like examining all of the possible things that you could believe and then weighing the evidence and then deciding on the absolute best, most coherent, most consistent belief system. Saying yes, I will make that one mine. The reality is even the formation of belief is often something that is is it's just as much being done to us as we are doing it mm. right i think of james k smith he has a phrase i think he came up with it he said that um 
often our beliefs are caught, not taught. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what he's getting at is they are picked up in the culture through our desires rather than reasoned to. When I was teaching high school students, we had a section in our ethics class, I think it was, where we talked about some of these things. And we would look at some cultural narratives, say, and the phrase that I would point them to that you hear people say a lot is, that makes me want to fill in the blank. Mm -hmm. It's a very common phrase. Um, You know, you watch a movie that takes place in a certain place and and that makes me want to go visit that place. Or you listen to a song that reminds you of some person and, oh, that makes me want to call up that friend or whatever. And how those cultural artifacts say make you make you want to do something and that's that's not the same thing as reasoning well i should do x or i should do right and and i think those yeah those sorts of things are are everywhere and always working on us and in us whether we realize it or not so to put a fine point on it and what we're talking about here really is a question of desire not just a question of belief yeah so Belief is wrapped up in that, obviously. Uh, What we think about the world is wrapped up in that. But it goes deeper than just what we think. It's also uh, what we long for, our our sense of what would complete us, what we need. All of that Mm -hmm. kind of intangible, like difficult to, to, to get your hands around. That stuff is being formed in us by the world that we live in. Now, if you can see that, that process is what I'm calling discipleship. In the church, it's clear, right? You know, we, we, we form affections. We, we worship week after week, even though when you're first introduced to worship, it feels strange. Right? The liturgy is unusual, the, the words feel awkward in your mouth, and in some sense, even though this, the service lasts an hour, it feels like it lasted forever. <laughs> you know, it was exhausting. But over time, our desires are, are shaped and directed and formed, and we're able to understand more of what's happening, but not just understand we're also able to, let's say, long for the right things. Like we long for communion with God in that service. So mm. again, that's discipleship, capital D. What I'm saying is there's, there's discipleship just like that going on all around us all the time, that everybody is a disciple, right? That all of us are having, you know, habits instilled in us, are being shaped and formed by influences all around us and that these influences are affecting our hearts, you know, directing our hearts. So you mentioned uh, Jamie Smith and his cultural literacy, <laughs> literacies, uh, liturgies, cultural yes. liturgies, the way that the culture is like a liturgy that shapes us. Uh, Laurie and I went and saw him speak um, it's been a while now and he talked about the mall as a kind of you know, shaping liturgy for the consumer. Yeah. And it's a good example, I think, of this this larger thing that's taking place. A lot of us now looking for the metaphor, I think, it would be social media, right? That, that we live so much of our lives 
on that platform, those platforms. And certainly the younger you are, the more um, these experiences and these sort of desires and longings are being influenced and shaped in that particular sphere. I'm saying that's a kind of discipleship. Hmm. And that is making us into the people who we will be. So the objection is, isn't social media neutral though? Isn't it just giving you information? So how how is it forming our desires? How is it discipling us? Yeah, it's a good question. So whether or not it is neutral, I think for my purposes is beside the point. I mean, obviously there's a sense in which nothing is neutral and yet you can see that the platform itself uh, if you exclude content moderation policies <laughs> and things like that, it doesn't in itself have a message. It's like a carrier yep. of messages. And so, you know, it would be easy, I think, but naive to look at that and say, well, this is just the neutral public square in the same way that, um, you know, I'll, I'll observe sometimes if you were to read like a Christian worldview book of the 90s, there was a certain naivete to the way that that people would describe the process of worldview formation. Um, you know, you were wandering down the aisles in the worldview store, trying on all the different isms and choosing the one that was best, uh, which really ignored a lot of what we're talking about now and the way that the world kind of comes in at you. Mm-hmm. Now, I always loved Scott Oliphant's definition of worldview, and I used it in my book, Rethinking Worldview, because he emphasized the way that worldviews are formed by the world coming in at you. He talked about the strictures and the structures of the world and how it sort of not just contains us, but decides what are the questions that we have to answer and, and you know, what are the, the, the options that are available to us. And our, our, our view of reality as individuals is formed within that context. Mm-hmm. So that way of seeing, I think, it's not a judgment on what are the messages that are shaping us. It's more an observation about what are the structures, what are the the sort of carriers of messages, and and, in what sense do those mediums, media, have an effect regardless of what message it is that they're carrying. Mm. So if we, if we rewind in time a little bit, I've, I've seen a few examples where I think um, we might be able to get a little bit of clarity on this. Um, again, it's easy to pick on social media, but let's go <laughs> to an earlier time. Uh, before the internet, there was a little thing that was invented and debuted when I was in my late teens. It was 24-hour cable news. And it was, at first, a very exciting thought that there would be a news station that was covering what was happening all around the world 24-7. Like, at any time you wanted news, you could tune in. Now, it didn't exactly turn out to work that way because it wasn't covering everything it was covering the same few things over and over again during the course of the day in a way that is now very familiar to us but I had people that I cared about very much who started watching the first of these 24-hour news channels which was CNN uh, 
pretty much constantly. It was always on in the background. And this was the late 80s. And so CNN at that time had, as as most uh, news outlets did, a, at least a pretense of neutrality. Mm-hmm. Right? The way that you presented things was meant to be more or less even-handed. And yet, for people who sat in front of it constantly whether they were paying attention to it actively or they were just kind of, you know, having it as, as the filler in the background. I was shocked how their view of the world, their view of politics changed utterly in some cases to believe the opposite of what they'd believed before as a result of this exposure. Like nothing more had to happen just being exposed to that medium. So that always gave me that sense that there's something about this, even, even if it's supposedly neutral, just being exposed to this one thing over and over again, it's going to change you. It's going to have an influence. Now, I'll give you another example. So this is one in a church setting, which was very eye-opening to me. There was a person who had grown up in the church, had grown up in a Reformed church, uh, her whole life. And yet, if you talk to her about what she believed, all of her beliefs about God, Scripture, what the Bible teaches, none of them came from the Reformed Church. None of them came out of the catechism that she had memorized. All of them came from Christian television, from prosperity gospel preachers that she watched on TV. And again, one of these things, it's on all the time, it's in the background, you're half the time not even paying attention, but somehow absorbing all of this stuff that runs counter to what you profess to believe, but you can't really tell the difference. Hmm. And it all seems kind of the same to you. You stop noticing those, those points of tension. Yeah. Now, here's what was frustrating about that second example, though. How could you compete? So if you have a person who's, who's in your church and they are you know, showing up for worship every week, maybe they're in a Bible study or a small group, let's say they're spending three to four hours every week devoted to worship and study of Scripture. But then they're also spending, let's say, 20 to 40 hours with some other influence Mm -hmm. as well. Which of those things is going to have more influence? The TV. Yeah. (laughs) And so I think that, that, you know, that was true long before social media came along. Now, I think the only thing that's, that's changed is the intensity of it. You know, like the way that we receive it is different and, and, and maybe the way that we, expose ourselves to it in the sense that that in social media you're sort of constructing an identity in a way that you're not really doing with cable news and cable news doesn't know who you are doesn't reward you with likes or anything Mm -hmm. it's indifferent to your existence right it's just there you passively receive it but but what we receive in social media is not necessarily passively received right there's something more going on than that and yet I'm saying it's it's a very similar phenomena. And the the thing that certainly as a pastor, but but I think just as a person, 
that I'm becoming increasingly conscious of is the way that this sort of discipleship is creating a conflict between what we might think of as our intentional beliefs and our unintentional ones. Yeah. And so I find myself wondering, okay, is that a problem? <laughs> if it is a problem, what can be done about it? Yeah. Right. And the easy, the easy way of saying, well, no, maybe it's not a problem would be to say, well, yes, but when I go on social media or when I do this, I am consuming Christian content too. You know, when I flip through my Instagram feed, half of the videos are, are Christian influencers of one kind or another, you know. And so I'm really sort of getting more of the good stuff through these mediums. Therefore, maybe it's not a problem. Maybe it's actually a benefit. I've, I'm, I'm not saying one way or the other. I'm scratching my head over the phenomena and just wondering yeah. um, how much of, of our discipleship is intentional and how much is not. And... And should that balance be different? Well, I think it's interesting you bring up the potential objection that, well, maybe maybe this is good for me because the content is, is Christian, so to speak. Because part of what we're saying is, what I hear you saying is, it almost doesn't matter. I mean, it matters, but it also at times doesn't matter that what the, what the content is because the form of the practice that you're engaging is in, is also shaping you. Right. And, and I think that's what, you know, curated news feeds are all about. They're about giving you, they're giving you what you want. I think it's kind of creepy when I go onto say Instagram and they're serving me ads or suggested content that I'm actually interested in. And I'm like, Oh yeah, you're you're following me around, and it's and it's of course this bot that doesn't know right from wrong. And you could say, well, that's that's a good thing. It's just giving you more of what you want, right? I I think the problem is that no human engaging on Instagram is free or has has perfectly pure desires, including myself. So even even the stuff that it like a a bot's giving you is just giving you what you think you should want. Yes. Yeah, no, I, I think, right, suspicion of the algorithm is definitely a healthy thing. <laughs> There's another question that you raised, though, that's fascinating to me, which is, like, what if all the content was good? Mm -hmm. Like, what if you could create an algorithm that gave you, like, 100% Jesus-approved content? Um, would this be the right way to consume it? Would this be the right way to interact with it? Is, you know, seeing a, a, a pastor on a stage doing, you know, five to seven seconds of some soundbite, you know, <laughs> taken out of context, clicking like on that and then going to the next one. What if even that, like if every single thing that, that you had before you was good, I still wonder if the experience itself would would have a detrimental effect. It might actually 
lead me to use good things in a bad way. You know, kind of thinking along the lines of, let's say, like a disordered love, you know, like that, that there's something to be conscious of even there, that it isn't simply a question of, of getting the right content or good content. There's also the question of how we ought to receive it. So with that in mind, what I'm going to say is that the closer we get to Christian discipleship, the stronger we are when it comes to standing up to worldly discipleship where we need to, right? That the, the antidotes, it seems to me, or the counterweights or whatever it is, have to be the things that God has given us because there we have not only, again, oversimplifying the content that God has given us, but being received in the form through the structures that he has given us. Yeah. So again, the ordinary means of grace, right? The, the, the liturgy and worship, the preaching of the word, prayer, sacraments, these are forming and, and shaping practices which God has ordained for us. These are the ways in which we should receive these things. Mm-hmm. And therefore... The more of that, the better, let's say. The, the more our focus is, is there, the better. But it also makes me think that if we become conscious that there's a problem, like if we become aware that we're being shaped and that it's not always for our good, then we want to do something about that. But in order to make room for the, the counterbalance there is going to have to be a different relationship to that larger world of influence. Yeah. And I think this, this really is, is the key because here's, here's what I perceive that when people become aware that the world is shaping them or shaping the people they love, shaping their kids, there is a willingness to do something about that. You know, there's a concern. Like I, I, I'm going to be serious about this. I want to be more intentional about the discipleship of myself and my family. But that openness, I think, goes only so far. And, and the way that it typically looks, at least at first, is I am willing to add whatever is reasonable into the mix in order to balance out the bad. Mm-hmm. So it becomes kind of a... I think of it like people with swimming pools and the pool gets dirty, but you know, you can buy a chemical that you pour in and it, it cleanses the <laughs> Just water. Just more of the good stuff. Yes. <laughs> that, that That's often the attitude, right? It's like, yeah, we're being too shaped by social media. Yeah. The, the, the things we're consuming are, are changing our hearts. What is something I could add to the mix that would would counteract that? Mm-hmm. Preferably something that that would not require much commitment from me because I'm already way overcommitted to consuming this stuff. Yeah. And and I think that's about as realistic as like like diet pills, mm. right? Of course, we it would be wonderful if you know the church had some sort of thing, you know, add two drops of sanctification to your current media diet and everything will be fine. Mm. But realistically, habits have to change. 
right. behavior has to change. Yeah. If you're going to create more room for these ordinary means of grace in your life, that's going to probably mean less room for other things. Mm-hmm. It can be as simple as you know making room for the life of the church in your own life, but it could also mean the time that you might have spent sort of passively liking things you might spend in some more active pursuit. You know, maybe you're. I don't want to be prescriptive here and say here's what you should be doing, but you know, go on a walk, listen to podcasts or, or audio books, or you know, like do something <laughs> that isn't yeah. isn't the the, the same repetitive, you know, seeking after those Doom emotional scrolling. rewards. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, they, I've got an example I, th- I okay. think will help. And ironically, I, I came across this while scrolling through LinkedIn today. Um, so I have a, I guess a friend or a colleague who posted this. He, <clears throat> excuse me, he said, um, you know, on any given day when he's walking out the door to go to work, if he has the option when he needs a snack to grab a banana or an orange, he will always grab the banana. Why? Because when you're in a hurry, you're going out the door, the banana is easy to grab, easier to eat on the road, and there's no mess. Whereas if you were to grab the orange, obviously oranges are kind of difficult to break into, they're juicy and messy and sticky. So even if, say, on some random day he prefers the orange, he's going to grab the banana because he says there's less friction. And now this guy works in marketing like mm-hmm. me. So he was talking to marketers and he was saying, you need, to ma- you need to make sure your products and your apps and your websites have less friction because as soon as a customer encounters friction, they're going to choose something else. And, you know, as far as marketing goes, I think he's spot on. The problem is we are the people who use those friction-free apps and websites all day long. So, of course, Apple is brilliant at this, at removing all the obstacles, getting rid of all the friction in your user experience with their apps, with their websites, and... I guess the question then is, what is that doing to me? Well, I think one thing it's doing is it's making me have a certain expectation of the world that friction is bad and I should not have to deal with it. I should not tolerate friction. I shouldn't have to wait for a a load, you know, for a loading time of uh, more than two milliseconds. And suddenly I'm maybe a little less patient if I'm, if I'm expecting the world to be like that. So that's what I've been thinking about. Maybe, so back to what you're saying, maybe what we need to do is, to use the example, pick the orange every now and then. So even though it's going to be, it's going to have more friction, it's going to be messier and more difficult, maybe that's actually better for us because it forms us into the type of people who can have a little bit more patience, which is one fruit of the spirit. I I think it's a profound insight because... Everything we've been talking about in terms of Christian discipleship is friction. Yeah, exactly. The the yeah, preaching prayer. of the word you know, to endure it week in and week out is friction. <laughs> right? Prayer yeah. is is friction. Sacraments friction. Like just showing up for church 
is friction. Mm -hmm. There's a reason why all of that stuff seems harder for us than it used to. All of it has become friction. And we're so accustomed to everything in our lives being smoothed out for us. But the thing is, if, if, if you're looking for something that's going to shape and mold, actually friction is good for that. Yeah. yeah. You know, <laughs> friction is good for wearing down yeah. the, the, the things that need to be mm-hmm. worn down and, and resistance. Yeah. And I, so yeah. I think it's not a bad thing for us as, as Christians who want to be serious about discipleship, who want to be honest about the way that, that we are being discipled by the world to, to make a decision if you know it's as simple as this that that we want to choose friction yeah that we don't want to allow friction the presence of friction to be the thing that leads us to opt out mm-hmm. because as we do that we miss out on like real discipleship discipleship that is forming us in the right ways towards the right desires and affections yeah so I mean, discipleship is friction, is I, I think what we're saying here. Yeah. And uh, I don't want to oversimplify the challenges, clearly, it, huge challenges. Mm-hmm. And we all have to reckon with the fact that we are <laughs> so much more acted upon and influenced by the world around us than we realize, and then is good for us. And yet, something as simple as, as choosing... The path of friction could help us a little bit to, yeah. to regain the space in our lives to do real discipleship. Yeah. And, you know, I think over time, the friction feels less like friction and more like second nature. Yeah. That's what, you know, that's how the church and philosophers have always talked about virtue or mm-hmm. a habit. It becomes the thing that you want to do, not the thing that feels like friction. And yeah. I think that's, that's the goal is to be the sorts of people that just pray, that just show up, not out of some robotic necessity, but because our character has been shaped to that point. So I think what you're saying is that the way to pursue discipleship is to pursue friction until it's not friction anymore. Yeah. Right. To, to start on the things that, that feel like they offer resistance that, that go against the grain for us but to stick with them and to do them long enough to where we're shaped by them mm-hmm. and we don't feel that initial friction any longer. I think that as a metaphor is really helpful because I mean, certainly for a new believer, but, but also for, I think for any believer, we all go through these sort of seasons where, where doing what we ought to do is difficult and the thing that we're being warned against is easy. Yeah. The thing that we're being told is, is a, if not a dangerous influence, at least a distracting one, is undemanding. And we're being told instead to you know, put all our energy into something that, that, that feels much harder and, and in many ways less rewarding. But if we understand what you're saying by sticking with those <laughs> friction-causing means of grace, eventually they do shape us in such a way that the friction is gone and that this becomes the path that we want to be moving in and that eventually to veer away from it becomes the path of friction mm-hmm. and difficulty. And 
I won't pretend that, that that's where I find myself, but as I hear that, that does speak to me in my affections. It does speak to my longings and how I want to follow after Christ. Thanks for listening to The Commentary. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can rate us on your favorite podcast app and share episodes with your friends on social media. You can subscribe to The Commentary on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. To find out more about us online, visit graceforsufalls.org. 